Namo tassa pakawato arahato sama samputasa. Namo tassa pakawato arahato sama samputasa. Namo tassa pakawato arahato sama samputasa. Buddhang tamang sankang namasami. Is the unique monk on the tapestry <laughs> the one whose robe covers his upper torso and limbs, right hand? No. <laughs> this is the koan. <laughs> I do this every year. So you have interesting iconography here. You know, you have the tanka was made in Spielowicia, I think, Poland, with a friend. I was teaching a retreat in Latvia, and he gave us that one. And the iconography is not iconic, <laughs> because you'll never see a Buddha in Anjali. I've never seen that. So it's a Polish, a Polish icon. You're from Poland, aren't you? <laughs> Polish icon. So... Spijak, Spijak Molski, uh, he's a good artist. And then the <coughs> the bronze Buddhas are Thai adaptations of Gupta period, which I think is around 600 A.D. Indian. And Gupta style was very, very elegant, very kind of elegant. And the most famous is from Saranath. It's the uh, teaching mudra. But this is a Thai adaptation that we made for uh, an image for our meditation hall. So there you go, iconography. And the, the mudras in the <clears throat> around the tanka, some of them, I don't know what they mean. I, what's this one mean? <laughs> I haven't really get that one. <laughs> so what you find is like in China, where is it? In Yunnan, we're in Yunnan. And there was a temple they just built for tourists. And they built a whole complex, not for tourists actually, for selling condos. So they had this massive standing Buddha on a hill, and all around it, many, many, many condos, which is some kind of development. And there, the, the artists just made anything with their hands. <laughs> They're just, just inventing stuff, whatever. Let's just paint them. There are hundreds of them. Anyway. These are, this one is the, obviously the um, meditation mudra. Um, <laughs> keep going, Peter. I expect, expect an answer. So this is our <clears throat> first 24 hours together in this retreat, and I'm enjoying the silence. People are, seem to be quite diligent and appreciative of that. I must admit, I, I do like meditating with old-timers. Uh, I don't think I could do a newbie retreat, like 40 people just fidgeting. I, I couldn't. I don't think I could do that. Because <laughs> it's, it's painful to watch. <laughs> just, and I, I was uh, thinking about the first retreat I ever was asked to lead. And <laughs> Why I remembered it was because the monk staying with us, Ajahn Kemasiri, he was the abbot of the Swiss monastery for 20 plus years. He's been a monk for 
34 years, and I knew him as a layman. He was a baker, a baker in Berlin. Started the first Whole Foods. This is a segue, isn't it? <laughs> Get the topic. Anyway, um, he reminded, he, had, he was on this infamous retreat. My first time I had to teach a retreat, half a retreat. <clears throat> and it was in a wind, windswept valley in Northumberland, 1978. And Ajahn Sumedha was the teacher, and it was really rough. It was a rough house. People were renovating, and there were about 12 people. And um, Ajahn Sumedha was called away. So maybe 15 people. So I had to teach. I was petrified. I was, absolutely, like, I was a really shy kind of guy, really self-conscious and shy. And I was just so afraid. I, just, I forgot the chanting, you know. And Nick said, Namo Tassanamante. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. But on the retreat, Nick's girlfriend was a very forceful woman. I don't think she was there for the retreat. I think she was there because of Nick. But um, she had a go at me. She said, what right do you have to sit up there and talk to us? And I said, I don't know, he left. <laughs> Not my fault. <laughs> so, I, I do wonder, what the heck did I say? I have no idea. <clears throat> Hopefully I'm more coherent now. Um, so, now, when when we do a retreat, it can sound very um, what selfish. Like I'm always thinking about myself, right? But it's not really. It, it's you're looking at stream of consciousness and learning about something. Hopefully, so Buddhism is in the con larger context. It's in the context of of living a very responsible life, morally responsible, uh, um, a life of generosity and service. Um, a life of, of care and concern for oneself, one's environment. So that's always important. If you don't get that context, then of course um, it can sound very selfish. These people just thinking about themselves all the time. But you're not really thinking about yourself, are you? It's not like, if you are thinking about yourself, please don't. Because <laughs> that's, that's very depressing. <laughs> you really, if, if you want to get depressed, think about yourself for seven days. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not thinking, we're observing consciousness. And, and this is, when we talk about the Buddhist path, we talk about <clears throat> conventional reality, and that's the realm where we, where we emphasize moral precepts, um, social responsibility, and all those other good things, uh, generosity, <clears throat> and who we are in the world as individuals and what our responsibilities are. So that's where we employ the, the sense of I as a person in the world. Uh, and that's important. So we try to get that right. And then that becomes a foundation for observing life in a different way, and that's observing the stream of consciousness, the stream of conscious experience, and being the witness. So if I'm not living a very skillful lifestyle, it'll be hard to do that because my mind will just be full of remorse or regret or whatever it might be. So someone, say, from who has just fought in Afghanistan and has to do this and suffers from PTSD, 
They need, they need more, they need skillful things. This won't work for them, it's too difficult. So lifestyle is important. Um, and, and there was a, a question about <coughs> kamma. Uh, all that just later. Um, so then, in terms of like conventional life, we talk about kamma, uh, actions, intentional actions, and the results of intentional actions. But when we talk about nibbana, <coughs> or the transcendent, <coughs> then that's what goes beyond kamma, beyond time, beyond the um, uh, vagaries of time, beyond birth and death. It's not a, not a matter of birth and death. And so this is the transcendent. Um, it's defined as nibbana, the unconditioned, uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn. And, 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 and Buddhism really wouldn't be Buddhism without that. If you just had a, a secular form of mindfulness, that would not be Buddhism. And then mindfulness without morality would not be mindfulness. So mindfulness, which is just taken out of the context of this vast teaching and all its other responsibilities, really isn't Buddhism. It's, it's, it is what it is, whatever people teach it to be. But mindfulness always is, is conjoined with wisdom, uh, an understanding, a moral responsibility, and then quite often it's the way it's phrased is mindfulness with. So mindfulness with, anapanasati mindfulness with in and out, with the breath, or mindfulness with the perception of change, and always in the context of morality. So those of you who are involved in the mindfulness movement, um, it's good to maybe see what part of the mindfulness I teach uh, is in line with the Buddhist teaching. Is there something that's not in line with it? And to question that and look at it and see how you can maybe enrich it more in those ways. I realize that sometimes secular teaching, you're not allowed to speak about people's moral life, but it's going to be huge, isn't it? So a person who's living a, a sloppy life, it's pretty hard for them to really have any effective awareness or mindfulness. They're going to be always conditioned by that sloppiness. So, so in a retreat then, it's, it's a kind of different time <clears throat> where we bring into it our moral life. You know, we bring into it how we've lived, our, our modes of generosity uh, and, and um, truthfulness, all of that obviously is a part of the retreat because that's how the mind is conditioned. Um, oh, Terry, welcome. When did you get here? I just noticed, yeah. <clears throat> that's another segue. <laughs> Um, so, so that is a part of this retreat, but, but now, like, all the functionality of our life is taken care of. Someone's cooking, and someone's doing the shopping, and someone takes care of the electricity, and uh, so on and so forth. So we can just cart these bodies around from A to B and witness. So this is the freedom of a retreat. Uh, but it's not the freedom just to do what you want, because that's not really freedom, is it? You know, that's enslavement. So it's freedom within a form, within a structure. It's the freedom to observe oneself within the format of sitting meditation, walking meditation, moral precepts, noble silence, eating at such times, no entertainment. So the, the functionality of the retreat is set up, and then we have the freedom to witness how that affects us in stream of consciousness. Okay? Simple enough. But it is a golden opportunity, isn't it? Very rarely do you get that chance. Usually the mind has to be preoccupied with objective um, responsibilities and try to do that well. So, But here, 
here you can just kind of witness, just kind of witness. <laughs> Uh, and so that's what I'm encouraging is, is the, um, what I'm encouraging is, is an emphasis on awareness rather than an emphasis on the, the, the content, shall we say. I mean, we still have to pay attention to the content. If it hurts, you have to move and so on. But trying to introduce language and ideas which is emphasizing awareness. Um, so a question, is awareness permanent or impermanent? I should say it's permanent. Uh, in terms of experience, in terms of experience, sense of self is imper impermanent. Now, because we identify with sense of self in thought, we think that we that uh, awareness isn't permanent. Uh, oh, I was really lost in thought. But I, I would question that. I, I'd say, have you ever been absent? You know, for during this retreat, find out if you're not here. <laughs> It's, it's actually a, a valid spiritual inquiry. Uh, now, the sense of me as a person, that comes and goes. Uh, in, 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 in deep sleep, it seems to a sense of self is gone. But then that's just time. Time is sense of self. Whereas awareness is timeless. That's, that's, the, that's the idea. So when I, when I use uh, awareness, I, 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 I use awareness, consciousness, presence, knowing. I, I use those synonymously. That's the language I use, and and this is for reflection. You know, the, the 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 one thing which will defeat you in Buddhism is if you believe in it, because belief is a superstition, isn't it? Culture beliefs, uh, whereas reflection, reflection is like inquiry, investigation. Eh, I don't know. That doesn't sound right to me. Check it out. Right. That's that's a good quality. Whereas belief. Belief is can be you can have good beliefs, but that will always be your limit. That will always be your limit. And and one of the things that we suffer from is uh, idealism. And idealism is a form of belief, and so it's a form of superstition. Now we don't think we're superstitious. We're cool. You know, it's those Asians that do all that bowing and all that mumbo jumbo of the incense, right? They're the, but actually. All kinds of idealism that we pick up from our culture uh, can be good, but when we hold to it, uh, we are limited by that as well. That's one of the big problems with the spiritual path for folk like us, because you know we we're good folk. We we we're sincere. We we you know we really want to be good beings in this world. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. You know, if we were out there selling meth on the streets. <laughs> We wouldn't be here. So we are good people, and and we have good values, and quite often we have a strong sense of self-disparagement. And that self-disparagement, in a sense, is better. Is probably the quality you need to get into Buddhism, because if you thought you're the cat's meow, right, and everyone else was a twerp, <laughs> you wouldn't be here. <laughs> so a little bit of self-disparagement is probably helpful. But when it goes overboard into a constant inner tyranny, then it's attachment to idealism. And, and that's the kind of cultural attachments. Ajahn Sumedho points this out very, very well. One of the things that prevents the understanding of Dharma is this kind of cultural attachments which you have, or like what a man should be, or what a woman should be, or uh, whatever your parents said, you should be this and you shouldn't be that. And, and they're not bad, they're not bad. But when you're attached to them, you don't really notice its opposite. So like, like, let's say, one of the foundations of liberation 
in monasticism, the, the thing we are uh, encouraged to do is to be practice contentment with little. Yeah, simple enough, contentment with little. Now, if I take that as an ideal, what do I do to my mind? I have contentment with little. I like brown rice. I don't like white rice. Oh, I should not. Oh, I should. I should be grateful. You know, there is rice. I should be grateful. That's attachment to idealism. It's not content with little. But if I take contentment uh, uh, with little to be a reflective um, theme, a reflective theme that I can use to understand myself and understand the limitations of attachment to preferences and so on, if I take that, then I say, okay, I'll practice witnessing. I'll practice with this reflection. I'll practice with contentment with little. That's different than idealism. So I, 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 and I'm, you know, as a as a young monk, I'm very encouraged. As an old monk too, <laughs> encouraged to actually reflect on that, so that when my mind experiences discontent, ah, oh, this is the the mirror of content with a little. The practice of mindfulness with content with little shows me the discontent, and I say that's not a good pathway to go. And then I bear witness to it. I don't repress it. I don't have to feel guilty about it. I say, well, no, that's not. That's, that's your interest in objects, but actually your, 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 your vocation is to realize the objectless, Nibbana, the deathless. So then that reflection, rather than being a self-disparaging inner tyranny, oh, you're not content with little, it's, oh, contentment with little feels this way, and then I'm back with awareness, and then that ceases, and I've honored awareness rather than get caught up in my own idealism. And if I don't have that kind of reflection, well, then I just get sucked into preferences, and that doesn't work either. What is it, the Xin Xing Ming, the, the, those, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences? You take that as an ideal. I shouldn't have preferences. That won't work, because you have preferences. You know, you like milk or you don't like milk in your coffee. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? But when you don't get the milk, and then you complain to the management or to me, there is no milk, that's the problem, right? That's the problem. So contentment little becomes a, a lovely a foundation for uh, moving towards the unconditioned. You see what I mean? So you have to look from your own mind and your own culture and your own conditioning, where does self-disparagement come up? Yeah, and in terms of your own idealism, and, and to look at what's the difference between trying to be a good person and berating yourself for not being a good person. We all try to be better people, don't we? You know, I mean, we are good people already. <laughs> I'll give you an A+, plus, you know. <laughs> you don't have to stay seven days. <laughs> but, 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 but there's always some part of consciousness which is not so pretty. You know, it can be, you know, jealousy can feel, feel pretty nasty. And then if we take it personally, I am a nasty person and we've lost the plot. So two things then that, that prevent the realization of dharma, the sense of taking things personally. Now on a moral sense, so, so it's very important in Buddhism to get this distinction that on a moral sense, yeah, I have personal responsibility. You know, if the monks find me drinking whiskey in the monastery, they'll throw me out <laughs> and he'll be the first one. Because <laughs> that, you don't do that. Uh, I, I, I have never done that. <laughs> but uh, so I have a personal responsibility to live by the rules of the monastery, right? So people can say to you, if you're a dummo, 
you know, that was wrong. You shouldn't do that, even though you're 45 years a monk. We don't do that. I say, oh, don't take it personally. <laughs> that doesn't compute. <laughs> or it's not self. Hello, I'm sorry. So then the monk, what the monk does to me, he kicks me in the shin. He says, oh, it's not self, huh? <laughs> so that, it doesn't work at that level. And that's where we're, we're Buddhism, we just come this, this weird New Age gobbledygook. Uh, that's what it's about. So there is personal responsibility, and and within that there are there there is the law of karma. If I if I do things which are cruel, I'll get a cruel result. You know, that's the way the law of karma works. So then that's the moral part. It's personal in that sense. But then in stream of consciousness, what we're trying to realize is the impersonal, unconditioned nature of awareness. And there the problem is our attachment to the flow of sense experience to the flow of consciousness, our attachment to our, our, our we would be sought at it with it in, in various ways, attracted by it, repelled by it, and we don't know how to abide as awareness. We tend to abide as a person trying to become something, and that's what we mean by taking it personally, or what we call Sakaya Ditti. So in terms of, you know, of Buddhist theory, there's a, there's a thing called stream entry, where, where you're in the stream of dharma, and what prevents that is, first of all, what we call sakaya ditti, taking things personally. So if I feel jealousy, now let's say, the, go back to that example of, of, of being content with little. So that's the reflection to help me see the arising of discontent. And so that's good enough. So I don't like this rice, I want another rice. And I notice that, and I witness it as change. I see it as change, so that reflection helps me. But if I take it personally, oh, I, shouldn't, I should be content with little, that's, that's wrong. That won't help you. That won't free you. It'll prevent you from being a creep, maybe, or something like that. But it won't really liberate you. It'll, it'll always kind of force you down into a very unhappy state, because you're always trying to control yourself to be this perfect person. It doesn't exist. But if you, if you see that the arising of discontent is an opportunity to practice awareness and be patient with it, as opposed to expressing the discontent or blaming or, or you know, whatever you do, getting attached to it, that's the problem. Not the discontent, it's the attachment to it. I say, oh, that's the... So then I feel discontent. Oh, yeah, it feels this way, and that's uncomfortable. But as it ceases, I'm emphasizing awareness. So that's the difference between idealism so we have personality view. That's a very important part of Buddhism. So when, you, when you're taking your whole thing personally, um, the whole shlamazala of the stream of consciousness, don't do that. Just know it as it is. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. But you can't do it. So sometimes humor, you know, we use humor. You know, you, uh, you know, somehow you humor about this or whatever, but this very, very important part to, to see that the personality is just thought. I mean, personality is really weird, isn't it? It just kind of comes out of you. You know, you find you, you know, wake up and you're grumpy. What's that about? Are you really essentially grumpy? Not really, because you can know grumpiness. You can be reborn as a grump, <laughs> you know, and you're welcome to, uh, and your day will be miserable. But grumpiness is simply a state of mind. And then if I don't notice grumpiness as an object, I then think grumpy thoughts, and that's known as rebirth. (laughs) 
and then take it to the office and so on. But you can you can know the grumpy personality, right? We've seen it for 40 years. You must know it by now. So you don't have to get rid of it, but you don't have to be it. You just know, oh, grump is this way. And And where does it end? It ends in thought. If you have the thought, oh, I shouldn't be grumpy, you know, I, I have an important meeting, I better cheer up. <laughs> yeah, okay, cheer up. But just to know, just to have the courage to feel grumpy and to know this will change. And that's the secret of Buddhism, that you employ, in mindfulness, you employ the perception of change. Not believe in it. That's where people make a mistake in Buddhism. They think Buddhism, you know, Buddhists, we believe in change. Well, who doesn't? You know, anyone, you know, the weather's changing, oh, good for you, that's wise. <laughs> it's really profound. <laughs> but obviously Buddhism's got to be more than that. And what is it? Well, it's actually employing the perception of change as an ongoing reference to stream of conscience. Now that's different. You see, your mindfulness with a perception mindfulness with a perception. So as the grump comes up into consciousness, and you're pre- what's the changing nature of grumpiness? That takes you back to awareness. You can't do that perception of change and be grumpy at the same time. You have to choose one or the other. I, I, I suggest the, the former, <laughs> but you are allowed to choose the latter. Um, but it won't be fun. So you start to employ the perception of change rather than just think Buddhists believe in change. That's just, that's really, that's not very, that's not, that has no depth to it. But actually, to feel disgruntled about something, so I'm going to witness the changing nature of this. You first of all accept it, and then you witness patiently this thing, and all the time, all the time, the sense of awareness is being, being taken refuge in, I'd say, becomes much more, yeah, that's the place to be. It's all right. And, and you survive some of these things. You know, I'm, I'm just being facetious about these, these, these examples. But some things are much, much, much more serious. But you just, this, what's the changing nature of this? And, and you abide. And you say, oh, there's that unchanging, that which is unchanging in the awareness. You become more and more interested in that. And that's why we, we emphasize uh, change so much in Buddhism. But you have to do it, right? You have to actually employ it as a perception. Now, sometimes people think that they'll get some kind of mystic experience of change. That's the one I went through, like, yeah, if I just keep meditating, I'll get this experience of change. And then, boink, I'll be enlightened. (laughs) I used to suffer like that. So I'd be looking for this experience called change. But it's changing all the time anyway. Like if they look for, just notice it as a perception. So I thought I thought that Buddhism was like you just really, really tried hard, and that at some weird point it had all just, you, you know, like the chakras would blow open and you <laughs> all that stuff that we read about. Right? There's a lot of disappointment there. <laughs> But if, if there is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, there would be no release from the condition, from the changing, from birth and death. That's, that's what we have in our texts. If there were not that, there would be no freedom from this. So if there is that, what is it? Well, if it's unchanging and not a matter of time, it can't be tomorrow. 
So if you're looking for enlightenment tomorrow, um, good luck. Because <laughs> tomorrow never happens. Tomorrow is just a thought in the mind, right? But a lot of our efforts can be anticipating or looking for some experience. But that can't be it. But if you notice that movement to the future as an object changing, then you come back to the unconditioned, right? to, the, to the, that which is not becoming anything. So then the language we use is non-becoming, non-becoming, non-anticipation. Uh, and, and this is a strange kind of language, and it's a language I, I really love to employ in my own practice, because it's a language that always brings me back to my real home, to awareness itself. So, you know, just kind of suggesting ways that you might do that. Now, the, the difficult part is that experience is um, dualistic. It's, it's uh, a pleasant and unpleasant. And that's the tough part. You can kind of maybe get the theory but when push comes to shove and life is unpleasant, then it's very difficult not to seek something pleasant. And sometimes it's biologically necessary. So I break my leg, or, or <laughs> he broke his hip. He was getting around the monastery with a broken hip for two days. Um, you can go to the doctor. <laughs> so you think, well, you know, I just should bear with it. No, you, you try to get out of the unpleasant, but inevitably, this movement of life is, is dualistic, it's polar. And, and, and desire is that which is seeking, um, seeking pleasure and trying to get away from displeasure. And that's why we're a bit down on desire. Desire can, can create pleasurable experiences, great. Go to the opera or uh, do what you want. But, but pleasurable experiences are not unconditioned. And they're not, they're not spiritual in that sense. Which doesn't mean that Nibbana is unpleasant or, or neutral when we say it's the highest happiness. But it's approached not through the pursuit of objects, it's knowing, knowing change. So I may, may I suggest that as a kind of second, uh, what did I suggest? Uh, I suggested first of all, present moment awareness. Make that an intention into your mind. Abandon all thoughts of the past in all consideration of the future. You can do it for the seven days, right? You, you know, your family will survive, don't worry. <laughs> your husband will get the pizza or whatever. Um, so, so allow yourself not to plan, or it, put it better, reflect on that, right? use that as a reflective vehicle, and then see how past and future are constantly being created in your own habitual patterns, okay? So use that like, like don't for, oh, oh, Bhante said I shouldn't think, no, not that, just reflect on how past and future are constantly being created through thought and just see where the end of that is. And you stop thinking about it, let it go. See if you can do that. And that, that's something you have to train in, it doesn't happen by itself, right? It's not a belief, obviously, it's something you have to train in. But I suggest the more I input you put into that kind of intention, the more it does work. You notice it more, just the nature of, of noticing things. So there's that, and, and then bring up the perception of change. You know, once you've established present moment awareness, you have to get, you have to get in the ballgame. But once you've got that, then begin to observe like pain as something that's changing in awareness. So we see the awareness, this experience of pain is in awareness. We do that more and more. And then I, I would suggest that those things do work. They're, they're pragmatic. They're not belief systems. They do work. You have to apply them. 
And, and that's the idea of reflection, that Buddhism is a reflective uh, teaching, and it's a, it, it, it offers these lovely pragmatic tools called ubaya, skillful means, for, for, for developing this, this uh, understanding and realizing. Um, let me see, what did I say? So what is the difference between consciousness and awareness? I use them synonymously. You might not. Consciousness is a funny word. So you just have to kind of, okay, this is how Viridhamma talks about it. It doesn't mean that you, you know, you might have a different definition of it. I'm not, I don't want to argue about your definition of consciousness. So I just want you to reflect on where I'm coming from. I'm, you know, I'm not looking for an ultimate answer about consciousness. Because then we just get intellectual. So you either... You reflect on what I'm saying and see if it's useful. If you think it's a bunch of bunk, fine. That's okay by me too, as long as you feed me. <laughs> this, is, this is important. So it's not like I want you to believe or don't want you to believe, and I don't want an argument consciousness. Well, this is this was, this is a truth for me. You know, does it hit any spot for you? If not, that, that, that's okay. The uh, so the quality of awareness seemed to change. The presence of consciousness did not. Perhaps my understanding is not accurate. It's probably accurate, but um, if there was, if the quality, like if, if obviously the person's using awareness and consciousness is different than I am. So I'm using probably awareness in the, like she uses consciousness. I use them synonymously. But any, any change in awareness would be an object. Any quality would be an object, right? And it could only be known by awareness. We could not be an object. So you can't, you know, awareness cannot, it has no quality. It's tasteless. <laughs> we, we named our cook Niraso, not our cook, our steward, Niraso. It means tasteless. <laughs> and why it is, because it's an epithet for Nibbana. Niraso, ni is negation, rasa is taste. And awareness has no taste. You can, you can taste the ice cream and a pickle at the same time and awareness will not change. Your mouth will change, your sense organs will change, and someone will say, yuck. But awareness won't change, will it? You can see a beautiful thing and an ugly thing, and there are certain have qualities and affect your emotions, but awareness is, has no quality that way. Yeah? That's why it's so ineffable. And you see, any quality that is known must be known in awareness, by definition. So if awareness changed, huh? how could that work? Couldn't work. So maybe this person is using awareness different than I am, but I use them synonymously. So the, it's again, it's not, I, I, you know, it's not a, like a philosophical argument. It's more an existential inquiry. Like, right, yeah, so, okay, what's he talking about? The Buddha said there is something unchanging unconditioned, unborn, undying. Okay, if I have some faith in his teaching, what is that? And then you have to look. Like if it's undying, it's unborn. So you have to stay here now. And then observe, observe. Oh, the very observation. And that's what it is. You know, this, it's not the object, it's the observing. So we, didn't, we tend not to be aware of awareness. So then I ask you, know that you know. That's not, I'm not trying to be clever, right? It's just like taking to that point. So, one more. As soon as I am in the now, I see that now is no more. 
now is no more now, but becomes instantly the past, is it something that I should pursue or just ignore? Definitely ignore. <laughs> Most definitely. You're just making it complicated. You're just thinking, right? Oh, the past is gone. Where's the present? <laughs> that's just the... And that's doubt. And doubt is the third hindrance. I talked about um, personality view. I talked about... Um, cultural attachments to idealism and so on. The third is doubt. And doubt is the, it's very difficult because doubt is always so clever. And that's a clever question. You know, and we could talk about it for two hours. <laughs> philosophically, in the end, we'd still not know. So doubt, the, the, the antidote to doubt is letting go of thought, not getting an answer. And that's hard to do for intellectuals. And we're all you know, we're well-read, and so we've used, we've used the mind for things. But uh, to try to, to figure this out with thought would always take you to more thought, and all thought takes you to doubt. So it's not, this isn't a conclusion intellectually, it's a realization experientially. It's like this. <laughs> okay? All right, let's end the talk there. Sarukarangrama <clears throat> say